here this morning. Glad to see uh, all of you here. I know it's one of those things. Um, church has got three high attendance days in the year, uh, Easter, Christmas Eve, and Mother's Day. And Father's Day is one of the lowest attendance days in churches worldwide. Um, I will not speculate why that might be. I guess because on Mother's Day we give out flowers, and on Father's Day we just say Happy Father's Day. I don't know. If you can figure out what kind of a gift uh, fathers would like, uh, hammers or beef or something, then maybe if we start handing out beef jerky and sunflower seeds on Father's Day, we'll have much higher attendance. Why didn't I think of that last week? So, unfortunately, I don't have any today. Uh, So, hello anyway. Happy Father's Day. It is so exciting to see everybody here. We're getting started on our new summer series, uh, going through the life of Jesus through the Gospel of John, and it, it's going to be fantastic. But before we start that, uh, we are going to be in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you're not used to looking at a Bible and the Pew Bibles provided, that's page 910. Um, but as you find your place, let me catch you up on a couple things. We've got some great news. The Texas Mission Builders are almost finished with our roof. As you can see, it looks fantastic. Um, They still need to finish, of course, the trimming it up and everything. And there's one small section here where they ran out of screws. You say, how on earth do people that put roofs on all year long run out of screws? Well, because they're from East Texas. And here, uh, by Texas Windstorm, we require about 50% more screws in the same roof as they do. And having been up there on that roof for part of that, um, let me tell you, that's a lot of screws. Every two feet this way, every 18 inches this way. Um, The nice thing about that metal roof is that it reflects the heat, so you bake very evenly when you're up there. And uh, at about 120% humidity, it's exciting up there. Um, And so the weather, of course, has slowed them down. One, because you just can't stay in that heat very long. And two, uh, it's been so wet, they haven't been able to move their forklift and get the metal up. But it's very close to being finished. They should be here tonight and done, probably Tuesday. Uh, there's a chance they'll have to come back next week and finish up some of the trimming. But I'm very, very excited about it. I think it makes the whole corner look better. And I, I'm just thrilled that they do this for free, you know, well, for the cost of the materials. You know, to, uh, if you're not up to date, This roof has cost us, when you count the lathing and different things, right at about $15,000. You could not put shingles on your house for what we put a metal roof on this giant building. And it's uh, hopefully going to help our electricity bill and everything else. I'm very excited about that. Also, of course, if you've been through the fellowship hall, you have seen clothes, 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 and more clothes. Uh, We've done a clothing drive for the flood victims and have had a huge response. Um, The fellowship hall right now has got about 16 eight-foot round tables that have about two or three feet deep clothes on them. We gave away clothes for several hours last Monday night and several hours yesterday. We've had probably close to 60 people, 60 adults, uh, come through with their families and each take three or four trash bags uh, full of clothes. But there are so many clothes in there still that uh, it didn't even make a dent how much they took. They took thousands of things and there are thousands more. Uh, That means that this week, if you know anybody that needs clothing, cleaning supplies, baby stuff, whatever, get them to me. My phone number, my cell phone number is on the back of the bulletin. And get them to me this week because everything we give away is something I don't have to box up and figure out how to get to these different people. Yes, ma'am. And if we're we're at point to drink stuff. Yes, ma'am. We've talked with them. 
and the hospice thrift store, and there's several places that'll take it. I just, there is so much that I'm worried about dumping it all on any one person to deal with logistically. But I'm so excited that we've been able to help uh, 50 some odd families uh, that were in need through this. It's just fantastic. So pray for them, pray for this. Uh, thank you all that came out and helped sort and organize and hand out and everything. It's just been wonderful. So we're, we're grateful. Yes, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Well, thank you all very much. Um, now that you realize it's my birthday, you realize I ate all the beef jerky and sunflower seeds. <laughs> Wrecked our Father's Day service. Terrible. Thank you very much. Um, I feel about a day older, not a year older. Um, so I don't, I don't know. Although with the flooding and the, di- the clothing drive and the roofers and the electricity stuff and the termites and everything that we've been dealing with, I feel like I've aged about a year in the last two or three weeks. But it's uh, very, very exciting. Thank you very much. So uh, those are our announcements. Just got a lot of great things going on. So be in prayer about that. Look in your bulletin, church camp, vacation, Bible school, lots of great things coming up. And I am expecting great things. So we're going to read through John chapter 2, the first 11 verses this morning as we begin studying the book of John. Um, Let me open it up here for you. Verse 1 reads, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus were called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. That's 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This, the beginning of miracles, did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are so grateful for the mighty, wonderful God you are, the God that speaks and things are done, the God that is concerned about the smallest things, the God that reveals your glory through these signs. I ask that as we go through the book of John, Lord, and study week by week the signs that you did to display that cause your disciples to have faith in you, that they would also cause us to have faith in you, that our lives would be changed, our hearts would be touched, and we would be made more like your son, Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. This is the first sign. Let me tell you a little bit about the gospel of John. Uh, You know, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C, synoptic. Now, if you know your root word, you know, sin means, S-Y-N means together. Optic is, you know, uh, glasses, seeing. So synoptic means seeing together. So Matthew, Mark, Luke 
You read them and you see a lot of things in common. They tell a lot of the same things. Matthew has got the Sermon on the Mount. Luke has got the Sermon on the Plain. Sometimes Matthew and Luke have something that Mark doesn't. Sometimes Mark has something and Matthew. and you know, It comes in all combinations. But they are very similar but tell the life of Jesus from slightly different perspectives. Now, John is different. John was written decades after the other Gospels in all likelihood, and he tells things from a completely different perspective. He doesn't list all the things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, because the people that read John had already known the stories of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They they knew it already. So he comes to give a new sign, a new evidence. Now, one thing he does that's very different is the entire Gospel of John only has seven miracles in it. Now, these seven miracles, he does not use the ordinary word for miracles that's used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use the word, the Greek word dunamis, which uh, means power. It's when they were looking for a word to describe dynamite. You know, they said, look, it makes a big hole in things. They, they used the Greek word dunamis. Now, that's not the word that mean, that's translated miracle in the Gospel of John. In fact, most modern translations don't use the word miracle at all. They use a much more precise word, sign. John doesn't tell you about miracles where God came in and displayed his power. He tells you about signs, things that Jesus did to point to something else. That's the reason that our series is called Signs of Life. What does it point to? Now, as we go through this, each miracle that is performed in the Gospel of John, then, is not just God showing you what he can do. It's teaching you something. It's a parable acted out. So these things really happened, but they happened to show you something. So this, of course, the water turned into wine is one of the most famous incidents uh, in the Bible, even though it's only listed here in the second chapter of John. And it it draws our attention to something very, very interesting. The first thing, we're going to start back in verse 1 and look at it piece by piece. This was The first thing I want you to notice, though, is it is a sign. That's what verse 11 calls it when it calls it a miracle, a sign. And it's his first miracle. So some uh, apocryphal books in the Quran and different things say that Jesus performed miracles as a little kid. Uh, There's a story in the Quran about him knocking a kid out of a window and bringing him back to life and different things. Uh, There's a story from the second century about him making clay birds and bringing them to life. None of that happened. The first miracle Jesus performed was when he was about 30 years old and he turned the water into wine. That's important, and we're going to see why uh, in a little bit. Verse 1, the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. The third day, there's two possible interpretations. I'm going to give you the more likely one. If you read through chapter 1, it accounts for four days as Jesus calls his first disciples, calls Nathaniel, calls Peter, calls these different people to himself. And as he calls his first six disciples, only five of them are mentioned by name in John chapter 1, it takes him four days to do it. So it's saying three days after that, after one week of ministry, Jesus is now ready to really get into action. That's important. How long did it take God to create the world? One week. So Jesus, by pulling out his new people, is beginning a new creation. He's beginning a new creation week. He's now acting. But while the seventh day that God created, God rested, Jesus is coming to celebration as he begins his new creation. He goes above and beyond what there was before. On the third day, there was a marriage. Now again, because we're just going through the seven signs, we skipped over chapter one. In chapter one, we met John the Baptist, if you read through that. John the Baptist did not go to weddings. John the Baptist did not go to restaurants. John the Baptist did not get invited to people's houses. John the Baptist wore camel's hair and lived outside and ate honey and locusts. He was not a 
socialized. He stood out and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, you wouldn't, John the Baptist was not a, a, a TV-friendly personality. He was rugged and out. Uh, Jesus will later say that when John the Baptist came not eating or drinking, they said that he had a demon. Jesus says, and the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you said he's a glutton and a drunkard. And so John the Baptist and Jesus are night and day different. That's one thing that's very important. Sometimes people think that to be a Christian, you have to be away from everybody. You say, somebody invites you to go to something, and you say, oh, I can't do that. That sounds like fun. I'm a Christian now. You say, you know, somebody, you talk to somebody, and you tell them, you know, Jesus will change your life. And they look at your life, and they say, oh, I sure hope not mine. Keep that stuff away from me. Um, you know, the, sometimes as little kids, we sing, you know, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And as Christians get older, they keep it there, deep down in their heart. And there's just a, a feeling that the more frowny-faced and the more upset you are, the holier you are. And Jesus here, it's in contrast to that. The first time we meet Jesus, where is he? He's at a wedding. He's celebrating. He's gone probably five miles, give or take, to Cana from Nazareth, and he is there celebrating. Jesus brings in a new kind of life. See, it's not about worshiping your will. It's not about being upset or frustrated all the time. Jesus here comes in with joy from the very beginning. So he comes in, and he's at a marriage. The mother of Jesus was there, verse 2, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. So Mary's there, Jesus, and the six disciples he's called at this point. Now, again, uh, you know, some, some Christians you know and you think they're the last person you want at your wedding or anywhere else. But Jesus is somebody that's invited. He's called in. So verse 3, when they wanted wine, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. A little bit more background then. A wedding in Israel was a huge affair. You think that our weddings are out of proportion now. A wedding in Israel took a week. They, uh, how, how did it start? Well, the, they would come in. They married widows on Thursdays and virgins on Wednesdays because of when the court was in session to declare the wedding. Um, and so what would happen is they would come that Tuesday because their day begins at sunset. After sunset, when it's now officially Wednesday, they would bring the bride and the groom with torches and a parade to their house. And they would have the ceremony and everything, and they would have a huge banquet at the house. Now, in our society, after the wedding, you've got your wedding, you say, all right, see you later, drive off. You know, uh, everybody waves, they clean up, and the couple goes off on the honeymoon. That is not what happened in ancient Israel. Ancient Israel, they continued to have an open house party for a week where they were treated like royalty. Uh, this wedding was so expensive that wedding gifts were not to help the couple have an easier life going forward. It was to help offset the cost of this massive wedding. In fact, it was so bad that if the couple ran out of wine or ran out of food, the guests could sue to get their gifts back and were legally, the couple was legally obligated to return the gifts because they had not hospitably provided a wedding. There's a story uh, that's in a, a secular Jewish document of where somebody had to, after their wedding, give back half of all the gifts they'd received because they'd run out of provisions. So this is a big deal. This, is, this wedding was the huge highlight of life. Now, Cana's a little bitty town. If you go to Israel, Cana's a little bitty town today. Um, Colleen and I went there last year, um, and there's just not much to it. 
But so in this life, where in this world, this city, where life is short, life is hard, people are poor, they have very little. The wedding, a wedding would be the highlight of the year. It's the, the only time that you can live with joy, the only excess you have. And then in this shame-based culture, this culture where gifts and everything were reciprocal, they run out of wine. And so, again, you look at that, and you say, you go to a wedding, they run out of wine, would you like a Coke? You know? In ancient Israel, they said, we ran out of wine, would you like some water that's going to make you sick? You know, those, are your, those are your two choices. That's all, that's all they had, effectively. Um, Jews wouldn't drink what was called strong drink, which was about the alcohol content of wine today, um, because it was condemned roundly in the Bible, because drunkenness is condemned in the Bible from beginning to end. Um, what they drank was wine, but they didn't distill it. It just naturally fermented wine, and then they diluted it about a quarter. You know, some sources say, you know, they diluted it a hundred times or whatever. That's, that's exaggeration for the rabbi's effect about condemning drunkenness. It, what it was is they took wine that was about as weak as you can make it because it already is it's just fermented and they, then they would mix one part wine to three parts water so nobody what well so what was the purpose of that the alcohol content that was in the wine which they couldn't prevent they didn't have refrigerators so it, it's not it's not completely unalcoholic the alcohol would kill the bacteria in the water so when paul tells timothy drink a little wine for your stomach's sake he's saying poison the water you know <laughs> sanitize the water with the alcohol from the wine. You don't need to be um, making yourself sick because you want to drink something that doesn't taste like anything. It says, pour, dilute the wine, dilute the water with wine, and that way you can drink it. So for them to run out of wine means that there's nothing to drink. Now, we don't know when this wedding took place, um, but having recently been to Israel in uh, July, I can say you definitely want to make sure you've got something to drink. If you can imagine going outside now and uh, say, we didn't, we didn't have air conditioning, and uh, we all went outside to have church, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have anything to drink, but we'll be done in just a couple hours. That would be very, very rough. Um, and, you know, you can say it's not the heat, it's the humidity, uh, which is true, and they don't have a lot of humidity there, but when it's 110 degrees and you're in the sun, it's the heat, too. So they, they've got a huge problem on their hands. Sometimes we read this and you know, say, they're out of wine. Oh, what's the big deal? But these people are at the center of their lives, about to let everybody down, about to cause a, cause a huge crisis that's going to taint their marriage, going to taint their relationships, going to destroy everything for them. But Jesus is there. So Mary comes to him, and apparently Mary's got some kind of role as family friends, probably, and she comes, and she says, they have no wine. They're out of wine. Now, she doesn't ask him to do anything, which is really interesting. At this point, as we know, Jesus has performed no miracles. But Mary has been around Jesus all this time and has known something was different about him and has been waiting for him to prove it. They've been anxiously waiting for something to be displayed. Uh, Jesus had almost certainly been the provider. You know, we don't read about Joseph after Jesus' birth. So Joseph probably died when Jesus was uh, between the time he was 13 and, and now. Um, and so or not, we don't read about him after the, uh, Jesus' teaching in the temple. So the Je- Joseph had almost certainly died. Jesus had been the provider. And Mary comes to him and just lays out the request, just says, here's the problem. You know, sometimes we go and we pray to God. And we think, well, before I pray, I've really got to work on this, and I've got to figure out what God needs to do. 
You know, God's going to need my help, and until I lay out for him part A, B, C, D of the plan, he's going to be in big trouble. You know, and so we come and we, instead of praying to God and lifting out our, our needs to God, we start issuing a series of demands. We say, God, I need you to bring uh, this bank account up to this amount. I'm going to need you to do something about this bill. Um, this coworker I've got, maybe, I don't know, Ebola. You need to do something in this situation, in this situation. And I'm going to need you to take care of all these different things. Mary's not like that. Mary says, God, here's my need. They don't have any wine. I don't know what you can do about it, Jesus. I don't know what ought to be done, but I know that you're the only person that I can go to. And so she says, they have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. If you read this, this is a hard verse. You say, what on earth? Jesus walks up to his mother and says, woman. It's, it's not quite that bad. Um, there's not a good parallel in English. Uh, the NIV says, dear woman, which is too tender. It's too soft. It's not that, that's not right. Woman in our language is too strong. You know, Jesus isn't coming up and uh, you know, telling Mary to go make him a sandwich. He's, but he, he uses the same word, woman, in, when he's on the cross. And he tells John, woman, behold thy sons. Uh, John, behold your mother. So it's a, the very best equivalent in English is ma'am. It's polite, but it's not intimate. So he's not, he says, ma'am, what does that have to do with me? Now, that is not a normal term for your mother in Greek or Hebrew. You know, that's one of the things here. That is a normal term for your mother. You know, you say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. But for them, it wasn't. So it, it's, it's removed, but it's still respectful. Now, why would Jesus be removed like that? Why does he say, ma'am, instead of mother? Ma'am, what have I to do with thee? That's even worse. You know, what do we have in common on this? Why is that my problem? And then he explains it. He says, mine hour is not yet come. And you say, well, Justin, you just said he explained it. What does that have to do with anything? Mine hour is not yet come. Well, at the beginning, it's kind of a mystery. And John's planting something in your mind. But as you continue to read through the Gospel of John, you will see Jesus talk about my hour over and over again. It'll say, they tried to arrest him, but they could not because his hour was not yet come. And they tried to kill him, but they could not because his hour was not yet come. And then when Jesus came, and in the, in the night before his crucifixion, he was praying, he said, what shall I say then? Father, save me from this hour. No, for this very purpose I came for this hour. So Jesus' hour refers to his death on the cross. Uh, it also refers to the second coming uh, in some places, but that's always made very clear. When he says, my hour is not yet come, he means my time to be displayed as the savior of the world isn't here yet. There's a couple different things that are tied in here. One, um, Jesus always answers more than you ask. You read through the Bible and you read Jesus having conversations with people. They will say something small and Jesus will answer all the things they didn't actually say. Here, Jesus knows that when he comes in power and glory in the millennium, uh, that the prophets described it as a time when wine would flow everywhere. He says, there's going to be a time of abundance, but that time is not yet. Moreover, though, Jesus knows something that, you don't, that Mary doesn't know at this point. 
Although when she had brought Jesus to the temple in Luke, it says that uh, the prophet warned her that a sword would pierce her own soul also. What she didn't understand at this point was what wine so clearly represents. You know, when we take the Lord's Supper, we take the bread to represent Jesus' broken body and the fruit of the vine to represent his shed blood. This wine here, Jesus' time with wine was to come the night before his crucifixion as a symbol of his blood poured out. And she, he says, what you don't understand is that once this starts, it won't stop. He says, once I begin performing miracles, once I'm displayed, I'm going on toward my hour. He said, this right now is not my concern. You say, well, that's still strange. You know, Jesus was on a divinely appointed timetable. This is the seventh day since he started calling his disciples. This is going. But I want you to watch what happens. In the very next verse... It says, His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Jesus kind of gives this soft rebuke to Mary. He says, Ma'am, that's not my concern. What does that have to do with me? Mine hour's not here yet. And Mary turns to the servants and says, Whatever he tells you to do, do it. One thing I'm going to note that's very obvious up front is what good advice that is. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. You know, uh, one of my favorite things to point out is when in the gospel, uh, sorry, in the book of Acts, when Peter is receiving the vision and uh, God says to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. What does Peter say? He says, not so, Lord. Don't say that. That's a terrible thing to say. But here Mary says, whatever he says unto you, do it. That's perfect. If we could live like that, our lives would be perfect paths to holiness. It might not be easy. They'd be perfect paths to holiness. We would always be exactly where God wanted us to be. But what does that tell us? That tells us that Mary expected Jesus to do something. So Jesus refers to her as man. He's got this distance because he can no longer relate to her the way he has been. See, our Catholic friends uh, pray to Mary because they believe that Mary has got special sway with Jesus. Don't you listen to your mother? But here, at the very beginning of the gospel, Jesus says to Mary, we can't have that kind of a relationship anymore. If you're going to come to me, it's going to have to be the same way as everybody else. You remember when they came, later on in the gospel, Jesus' brothers uh, and Mary will come to see him, and Jesus will say in Mark, actually, the, who are my mothers and my brothers but those that do the will of my father? He says, There's a break now. That's one of the reasons he says, man. He's got this intimacy broken. So Mary comes to Jesus as his mother, and says, look, they need wine. And Jesus says, what does that have to do with me? But then in faith, she says, whatever he says to you, do it. She comes to him as a believer, and he turns 180 gallons of water into wine. Nobody's got any special sway with God more than anybody else. The Bible says, the faithful and fervent prayer, the effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If you come to God in faith, do you know what God does? He answers you. That's all that it takes, you know. You cleanse yourself from known sin, because of course the Bible says that the Lord's arm is not short and that it cannot save, nor his ear deaf and that it cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from the Lord your God. You come, you pray to him, you say, Lord, forgive me, and then you say, Lord, this is my problem. Please take care of it. The Bible says, the effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous man. When you go to God and you pray, you can shake the gates of heaven as well as anybody. You know, sometimes people come to pastors or different people and say, can you pray for me? I know God hears you. Well, I sure hope God hears you. 
The Bible says in 1 John, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You know, Jesus has given you a shortcut to heaven. Jesus has opened up the door. The veil is split. You can go to God. We boldly approach the throne of grace. You can't go and say, well, Mary couldn't go and say, I'm your mother. You need to take care of this wine right now. But when in faith she said, whatever he says you do, when faith and obedience meet, God acts. Now, God doesn't just act in dunamis, in power, just to sort of set up a show. You pray, God, please help me win the lottery. You have no idea how much good I could do with that mega millions. God's miracles, the things that God does in the Gospels, are signs to point toward himself. And if you get distracted and you start paying more attention to the sign than the thing that the sign points to, you've got a disaster on your hands. Can you imagine going to the Grand Canyon and taking a bunch of pictures of the sign that says Grand Canyon, two miles? Well, that's ridiculous. Why would you? You came all this way to see the real thing. Why would you get focused in on the sign? I mean, the sign is true. The sign is there. That's great that there's a sign. But the sign's not the point. The thing the sign points to is the point. And so people get so caught up in miracles and things they expect God to do or whatever. And God says, why are you so focused on the sign? I'm over here. The true wonder of the world. You know, uh, we, we went uh, last night to uh, Colleen's mom, and Ronnie took us out for my birthday to the Astros game. Um, and I sure hope they play at the next one. But they... <laughs> and so I can't hold these people too responsible. But, you know, they start taking cameras of the audience. And you've got people that are sitting there texting, goofing off, doing whatever, paying attention to everything except what they just paid good money to do. Right? Can you imagine going and paying all this money to go to a, a game and then you know, staring at the scoreboard the whole time and never seeing what's going on or staring at your phone the whole time? When we get so caught up in the hand of God instead of the face of God, that's exactly what we're doing. We are so caught up in distractions that we miss the main event. So did Jesus come and empowering glory come and turn water into wine? Yes, he did. Did Jesus come and on the response, the basis of faith, answer Mary's request? Yes, he did. But what's more important is that he took the corruption and the oldness of the old age and turned it into joy and celebration that he pointed toward his own precious blood, that he could also bring us cleansing. That's the point. And if we miss the point, we're wasting our time. One thing, well, let me get just a little bit further before I get off topic. So, he comes, and in verse 6 it says, There were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, if you go to Israel, it's the strangest thing. There are uh, water containers with two cups hanging off of it in different things because you wash your hand with one hand, and then you use the clean hand to wash your hand with the other hand. So the unclean hand never touches the cup and contaminates the water, and you can purify your hands. Now, for a big wedding, they would come, and they would fill these, gallon, these containers up partially, and the servants, as you came in, would scoop water up and ritually cleanse your hands, would wash away the defilements of the world. Now, this, of course, was uh, it's a precursor to baptism. They weren't completely immersed, but they, they, they poured it, and it was, it was to show a cleansing of course, God makes it clear throughout the Old Testament. If you 
cleanse yourself physically, but your heart's not cleansed, God's not fooled. That's not a new development. But they would come in, and as they came in, they would wash off the defilement off their hand into these giant stone containers. Now, so I want you to imagine these barrels, 20, 30-gallon barrels, full of dirty water. The, 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 the dust and the things, the sweat that were on people's hands rinsed off into it. The filth. And then there's these containers here. And Jesus says to them, says to the servants, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Now, apparently the, the water's in there, but it wasn't filled the whole way. They've been using it for the hand washing and everything. And Jesus says, I want you to fill it up the rest of the way. It's a good thing Mary said, whatever he says to you, do it, and didn't say whatever he says that makes sense, do it. You know, because if, what good is that going to do? Everybody's already here. They've already washed their hands. It's a long way to the well. It's hot outside. There's no wine for us to drink. Why, why would we fill it up the rest of the way? So they go, and they fill it up to the very brim. It has done all that it can do. You know, these things symbolize, in some ways, the Old Testament religion that, you know, when you try to do the things like that, you can fill it up, and when they've done all they can do, you've still got the same problem you had before. You, know, you can try to work your hardest to please God, but apart from Jesus, you can fill that thing up to the brim, and you still don't have any wine. But watch, 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 watch this. And he saith unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. This is sort of like the best man. He sort of ran the wedding, the governor of the feast or the ruler of the feast. So they come and they scoop up a glass, of, a glass of the water made wine. And it says, When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. They taste this. And he says, I've got to, I've got to talk to the groom. What's going on here? Now, a couple of things that I want to note very quickly. The servants know and the honored guest doesn't. You know, that's the way Jesus operates the whole time, isn't it? Herod sits in his palace and says, where's the sun? And the angels come to the shepherds outside. You know, the, the people that seem to be wise, seem to be important, God skips over and goes to the humble. The servants know what's going on before anybody else does. See, God's not a respecter of persons. And so he takes this defilement. He takes the thing, the filth, and he turns it into something good through faith. Watch, watch what it says. It says, And he saith unto them, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Now, I'll stop with that last part in a second. But he, he says, Everybody brings forth the good wine first, and then as things go on, they bring out the worse wine. As people get their senses dulled, as people have been at this wedding for four days, and they're getting tired of everything... You know, it's not, well drunk does mean uh, under the influence of alcohol, but it doesn't mean drunken in the way that we think of it. Again, this quarter quantity wine, they, uh, drunkenness was a huge social stigma in Israel for uh, good reason. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians, don't be drunk with the wine, but be filled with the spirit. You know, they, they, it's just saying as they'd been drinking, as they'd been going through these different things, they would, you would bring out the cheaper stuff as time went on. Uh, you know, when... Uh, we were doing the roofers uh, on the, with the mission builders. You know, they, I started out giving them Gatorade. When we ran out of Gatorade, I gave them Sam's Aid when they were really thirsty. You know, they, it, when, you're, when, you're, when you get to that point, it doesn't make that much of a difference anymore. He says, but you, 
this is the best stuff of all. Now, I'm going to do this. This is, uh, I, I think most of you have probably seen this before, but I, I thought that it's a nice little parallel. Of course, you've seen, you are this. This is you, water. And this is sin. You've got a problem with sin. Right? We, we talk about this a lot, but somebody says, well, I just sin a little bit. I'm a pretty good person. And uh, you imagine telling somebody, I just had a little bit of arsenic or just a little bit of cyanide. I, I think I'm all right. Well, what does a relatively small portion of sin poured into you do? Uh-oh. The whole thing's black. This is your sin. This is you. Now, this is Jesus. Now, when Jesus is over here, it doesn't do you any good. I believe in Jesus. Uh, it's not doing you any good. What has to happen? Jesus has to be inside of you. You've got to trust him. I say believe in him. If you believe in him in a real, true faith way, he will come inside of you. But I mean, say, oh, I've always believed there's a God. That doesn't do anybody any good. And then when you add Jesus in to your sin and your shame, look at that. It cleanses you. It changes you. You are made something new. The Bible says he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened? All the sin in all the world was poured onto him, and he extinguished it. Isn't that a fantastic thing? If any man, <laughs> if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, that is not a miracle. That is iodine, bleach, and water. You know, uh, <laughs> I've got to be careful with it. I don't like this red carpet, but I don't want bleach and iodine on it to be the way it goes. Uh, but this is, I, I thought it made a good illustration of what's happening here. The defilements and everything from their hands poured in. It didn't do any good. But when Jesus comes in, he turns their sin and their filth and their shame into the best wine of all. All the things that used to be hindrances to you, all the things you used to struggle with, God says, let me transform that. Let me take your sin. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. God says, I want to make a change. And that's what the miracle at Cana symbolizes. The miracle at Cana, the water turned into wine, shows that all the things of the old world, the Jewish ritual pots, all these different things, only stored the defilement. You know, they may have put off God's judgment on Israel for a little while, but ultimately that sin doesn't go away. But when Jesus comes in, Jesus says, let me change it. Let me transform it. Let me make it into something new. And of course, then when we combine that with the fact that the wine obviously represents Jesus' blood, the fact that this happened on the third day, and Jesus rose on the third day, it becomes so crystal clear. We have been storing up our sins, washing them off, trying to put them together, but they never went away. But Jesus comes and replaces them with the abundance of his blood. So that when, because we place our trust in the fact that he died for us and rose again, we can be made clean. We can be moved from judgment, filth, the off-scouring of all things, into joy, the wedding supper of the Lamb. What a marvelous, fantastic thing. The very end of that verse, though, is one of my favorite points of Scripture. He says, Thou hast saved the good wine until now. Now, if you have not learned anything about God other than this, this is one of the most important things you can know, is that God saves the best for last. 
See, sin doesn't work like that. The devil doesn't work like that. When you're tempted to sin, you get the good stuff now, and then you've got to pay the interest later. Right? If you've ever gone to one of these uh, rent-to-own furniture stores, you start looking at the prices on it and stuff. If you're willing to make payments for the next 10 years, you can have the low, low price of $700 on a $100 table. Right? You, you get the good now, and the consequences come later. You know, we talk about this. Uh, how many people do you know that if offered the trade, you can, for the next 10 years, you can watch your life fall to pieces, you can watch your family members leave you, you can uh, go to jail, you can be hung over, and then at the end of that, you can drink. How many people would take the consequences first and then what they want later? Not a one. How many people, how many teenagers do you know? You've got somebody 16, 17 years old. Do you know that if you said to them, you know what, I've got this baby, and for the next 18 years, if you'll raise this baby, drop out of school, get a job, then after that, you can have sex. How many people are going to take that offer? Yeah. You say, you know, I've got some chemotherapy here, and uh, we'll do some surgery on you and different things, and in a few years, once we finish the treatment, you can have all the cigarettes you want. How many people would take the deals we're offered if they had to front load the consequences? That's not how sin works. Sin works because first the bait, then the hook. But God, on the other hand, says first the cross, then the crown. He says it may be hard now. You may have to come to your knees now. You may have to die to yourself and die with me and lose everything now. He says, but you will be repaid more in the world to come. He says, it just gets better from here. You know, when you first come to God and you've got, you, you realize you're a sinner, you realize Jesus died for you and you ask him to forgive you, that's a bitter pill to swallow. And then when you experience the forgiveness of God and the change in your life, you say to God, you've saved the good wine until now. You get a little farther in your Christian life and the things that used to hold sway over you have lost their power. You know, temptations no longer pull you the way they did. And you say to God, you've saved the good wine until now. You get a little farther and you uh, find somebody who needs the gospel and you talk to them and they accept Christ and you're there holding their hand while they pray and God changes their heart. And you say, God, you've saved the good wine until now. You go a little farther in your Christian life and you see that person that you had won to Christ, winning somebody else to Christ and making a change in their life. And you see that exponential explosion God does and you say, Lord, thou has saved the good wine until now. You get a little farther. You get to the end of your life. You close your eyes here, and you wake up in glory, and you experience the face of God. You say, Lord, thou hast saved the good wine until now. 10,000 years later, the Bible says, his servant shall serve him. You know God better than you ever had. And throughout all eternity, over and over again, you say, Lord, thou hast saved the good wine until now. See, with sin, there's a candy coating on it, but it rots in your mouth. But with God, it just gets better and better better and better. That's the way that Jesus works, is the defilements and the shames and the sufferings of the old, when faith meets with obedience, turns into something new and better than anything you ever had. Remember that it was um, the missionary who went to South America that was killed there. His wife died recently. Uh, her name was Elizabeth, and I cannot remember his last, their last name. But he wrote in his diary, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That is the trade that God offers you. He says, what are you going to do with all this dirty water? It's not doing you any good. 
that but if you will with faith fill it up to the brim and say, you know what, when it's full, there is nothing I can do. The only thing I can do is trust Jesus. Then from the depths of that fill, he will draw up the best, best through his blood. So as we see here in the very last verse of our text, verse 11, the beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. That's the point of this miracle, is to show who he was so his disciples would believe on him. Now, this miracle, you think Jesus' first miracle ought to be the feeding of the 5,000 or something like that, something big. But instead, the servants and the disciples know, and that's how God gets started. He says, I'm going to make a change. As you look at your heart this morning, I don't know where you are in your relationship with God. You may be still trying to do your best and try to do your best on your own. Wash off the defile. You know, you mess up. You say, well, I'm going to try harder. You bargain with God, all those different things. But all you do in all that time is store up dirty water. The purpose of this miracle when it happened was to show the kind of God Jesus was, the one who would take the filth and turn it into goodness, who would take the shame and turn it into rejoicing, the God who cared about the small things, the small people. That's the same purpose of the miracle today. That's the reason it's written here, is so that you, hearing it, reading it, could see, yes, God does want to take my filth and my shame. He does want to transform it into something new. He does want to change it. You know, the, I didn't do it, but I could have kept pouring that iodine and that water back and forth all day. And it wouldn't have changed anything. Got a little more over here, a little more over here, a little more over here. It's all contaminated. And that's the way a lot of people live their lives. They try to dilute the iodine to varying degrees. But until you added something that can counteract it, until you added something that can destroy it, rip it to shreds, there was nothing that could be done. You know, in your sin, you come to God and you say, God, okay. I'm going to come to church from now on. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to do this. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do all these different things. And God says, well, that's wonderful. But it's not going to do any good. If the inside is still rotten. You know, how many houses have been tragically destroyed with all this flooding and everything? It's, you know, she, Darren was telling me uh, they had to cut out four feet of sheetrock or something because his house had so much water in it. No. What do you have to do with that, though? You cannot paint over that waterlogged sheetrock. It may look okay for a little while. You say, well, I've got that water on top of it. But pretty soon, that stuff that's on the inside is going to show through. See, you can come to God, and you can say, God, I'm going to paint myself. I'm going to look so good. But when the inside is rotten and logged by sin and everything else, it won't do any good. It has to be changed. It has to be replaced. What God offers you is that if you will recognize you're a sinner, that you deserve his judgment, that you've rebelled against him on purpose, that a little sin versus a lot of sin is about the difference of one bullet in your head versus three. You say, God, I deserve judgment. That I've sinned enough against you. I've been a rebel, but I lay down my arms and I turn to you. And Jesus, the same Jesus that poured out his blood on the cross, the same Jesus that turned the water into the wine, says, I will give you the wine of rejoicing now. Maybe you are a Christian but you get so caught up in the water and the things of the world, you think God doesn't care about this, God isn't concerned about that, and you forget that Jesus came, that you might have life and have it abundantly. John 10. 
And Jesus wants to come into your situation right now. He wants you to trust him. Not to say, okay, Lord, uh, you know, if Mary had come up and said, Jesus, they're out of wine, can you please run to the store? Would have been, it wouldn't have been worth putting in the Bible. <laughs> but she just laid out her concern and said, Jesus, I trust you. Whatever he says to you, do it. Jesus wants you to live with that kind of faith, and he will turn everything you have into rejoicing. We're going to stand, and our musicians are going to come forward. We're going to have a hymn of invitation. If you need to pray, you need to get anything right with God this morning, won't you come? Maybe you need to be saved. Maybe you need to submit to baptism. Maybe you just need to pray by yourself with me.